Hello and welcome to Sex Ed for Sex Med, a podcast produced by the Ohio Sexual Health Collaborative for medical providers caring for women. However, women experiencing sexual difficulties who perceive a lower quality of life do not feel like themselves and are looking to increase their knowledge of sexual health are also encouraged to listen. I'm your host, Dr. Terry Gibbs, and together with my rotating medical experts, we'll be providing evidence-based fundamental and advanced concepts for evaluating, educating, and empowering women with sexual concerns. We'll be addressing physical, mental, and sexual health wellness, as all these aspects are important to enjoying a healthy sexual life. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Sarah Jungens, a pelvic floor physical therapist at the Prometica Pelvic Health Clinic. She has advanced training on sexual counseling and is a member of the board of the Ohio Sexual Health Collaborative. Today, we'll be discussing sexual devices and sexual health. Please enjoy this podcast. Well, today, we have a good friend of mine, Dr. Jungens, and she and Sarah here is going to discuss with us today medical devices or sexual devices, sex toys. There's a lot of names it goes by today, but we know that people use them for sexual enhancement, but they're also very helpful in therapeutics for pelvic problems. And Dr. Jungens is a pelvic floor physical therapist and, and an expert in this area. So we're excited about to get her involved in this and really help people become a lot more comfortable with the discussion of bringing up the subject of sexual devices or whatever you want to call them to help people with their sexual health. So good morning, Sarah. Appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Gibbs. What we want to talk about first is just, we, we talked about this, you know, enhancement part of this, but we want to talk a bit about just the therapeutic uses of these devices. Could you give us a couple of different diagnoses that you have for, for when you order these devices for people? Absolutely. So a few different diagnoses we can use are general pelvic pain, pelvic floor dysfunction, superficial dyspareunia, deep dyspareunia, anorgasmia. There's really quite a few that you can use. Those are just, just a few to start. But really, there are so many different diagnoses that do involve sexual dysfunction that can benefit from a vibrator. Well, you know, you, you have a diagnosis, you know, dyspareunia. What, what do you do with that? And how do you work into the conversation, the need and the use of one of these devices? Sure. So say with dyspareunia, we're talking about tight pelvic floor musculature. If there is tight pelvic floor musculature, you could be talking about decreased circulation, decreased neural mobility. And so talking to the patient about bringing in a tool that's going to enhance blood flow, enhance lymphatics, kind of wake up those nerves and dovetailing that into a discussion about sex toys, sex devices, whatever word is most appropriate for your patient is generally how I open that. How do you explain to them that it's, you know, it's a needful device, that it's therapeutic? 
that it's not taboo. (laughs) Right, right. So the taboo part is a big, big part of it. As you were saying earlier, it is really important as providers that we, in essence, get over that because when we are uncomfortable, the patient becomes uncomfortable and talking to them about the physiologic need for the device is important. As I said, blood flow and lymphatics, but also bringing up vibrators are classified by the FDA as an obstetrical and gynecologic therapeutic device. So this is legitimized by this governing body here that does have an effect on what's available and how they're marketed. But when you bring up the FDA, people tend to give it a little more credence. There's also quite a bit of evidence that people who use these devices tend to have better uh, health behaviors. Like they have an increased likelihood of having a gynecologic exam within the last year or performing a genital self-examination in the last month. So this, this really kind of adds into the whole big picture, the holistic view that we're taking with, with our patients. You know, what do you tell them about its use for their problem and how do you train them? How do you counsel them regarding that? It's all very individualized, of course. So depending on their presentation, their comfort, other comorbidities that they may have that we need to take into consideration for ease of use. I generally will start by asking them if they've ever used a vibrator or a dildo or a dilator, any sort of sex toy. And then from there, I ask them what their views are on it. Some people are just very against it and it's kind of a dead end and it's no use pushing it. But when you can legitimize it, people become a little bit more open to it. And then asking about preferences. So some are more willing to use an external device versus an internal device. If someone has anorgasmia or say they have those tight muscles or desensitization, we can start with something like a bullet, which is that external use only vibrator. Yeah, just kind of talk them through through that way. It's also important to talk about if they are intending this for personal use, for solo use. Is it for partnered play? What are their partner's view on sex toys? Because all of those can come into play with the patient's willingness to participate. It's very interesting, you know, in the literature to, to find how often these are used by, by people and very surprised to find out that it's, it's, it's really used extensively. One of the things I find that's very interesting, like for instance, I'm an OBGYN and our governing body, the American College of OBGYNs, really not only recommend us knowing about these devices, but the care of the devices to teach to people. Could you get into that a little bit about, you know, how do you take care of this? There are risks with this. Absolutely. So cleaning is the big one that I approach. Something like 40% of sex toy users have never cleaned their device, which is slightly disturbing. So there is a risk of infection. There is a, a larger risk with toys that are shared with the partner. So cleaning most devices that are commercially available, you're okay to just use soap and water. So I recommend usually an antibacterial hand soap and lukewarm water, depending on the material like metal devices, you can actually boil 
and, and disinfect them that way. It's important to let them air dry so that you don't have any towel lint. So you're not, not worried about that. And then storing them carefully. So you really don't want silicone toys, which is what most commercially available sex toys are made of. You really don't want silicone touching silicone. So making sure that they have their space in the drawer, wherever you're storing them, or even in their own little individual pouches. Do, do you have a, a favorite material, so to speak? I it really depends on the use. Silicone is great. Some of the places where you can buy these, and I'll, I'll share some of those later, are very forthcoming with the materials that they use. And some of these higher end products are medical grade silicone. So, you know, you're getting a good quality. There's some studies about phthalates and different materials that are possibly carcinogenic, but there's, that's not really substantiated in the evidence. There's not a lot of really good evidence for that, but depending on patient's comfort level and how much I think that they're going to be adherent with that cleaning regimen will, will dictate what sort of material there's silicone, there is glass, there is metal. Most of these products are marketed for novelty use commercially, and that's kind of to bypass that FDA clearance, but you also have hard plastic. That's kind of the, the old school original material, but that's mostly out of favor. It's not very lifelike. So people tend to, to stay away from it. About injuries too. I think all of us that have been around the hospital very long, we've all heard of those incidences where there's somebody going to surgery through the emergency room to get whatever right. dislodged. Yes. And, and tell us that about that discussion you have with people about avoiding injury. Sure. So external sex toys or devices are the safest to use. It's really patient limiting. So it's kind of hard to hurt yourself externally. Uh, the patient is really paying attention to how they're feeling and what's going on. Vaginal devices, depending on comorbidities, again, you need to be careful about stenosis, vaginal cuffs, radiation fibrosis. So just taking it slow, making sure that the patient has the right size of device. The greatest risk happens with anal devices. And that's kind of where those, those stories that we've all right, heard of right, and been around right. come from. So with anal devices, it's very, very, very important that there is an end, kind of a cap to the device that prevents the whole device from being inserted into the anus. So I tell patients there should always be part of the device outside of your body when it comes to anal play. Does the anal devices play a very big role with the therapeutic side of, of these devices, or is it more for enhancement? Largely for enhancement, but if you're talking about like, oh gosh, vaginal agenesis, you can think about different neural injuries. And if you're talking about patients that have quite a bit of stenosis or just are not comfortable with inserting anything into the vagina. We can go on a tangent or not right now about trans folk and some of our trans women may not have vaginas if they have not had that, that surgery yet. So it's something that we can use to, again, enhance blood flow, improve lymphatics, improve sensation, 
and decrease pain to the area. I appreciate your statement there because it brings up the, the next topic. You just kind of flow right into things. <laughs> Let's talk about you know special cases, sure. special patients that you encounter for different things. First, let's talk about pregnancy. Is there a place for these devices in a pregnant woman? Absolutely. So a gestational uterus can get in the way of a sexual activity that was engaged in pre-pregnancy. So something like these devices can help enhance things and bring about pleasure that way. The big consideration with pregnancy is placenta previa, right? So if there is pelvic rest, if there is an order for no vaginal penetration, then obviously we would think more towards an external device or toy. Different schools of thought on the role of orgasm on uterine contractions. So I definitely check with the referring provider and the patient's OB before I recommend any sort of toy or device, but that can really be very helpful in, in enhancing play. Do, do you think it's something that uh, uh, routinely an obstetrician taking care of a pregnant woman should bring up and say, do you use these? Uh, are you interested in using these? What do you think of that? Absolutely. I'm all about early intervention or, you know, really just talking about these things that are considered taboo. And so they don't come up, you know, it's that, that doorknob question when you're walking out of the room, patients may or may not bring it up, but so many people do use vibrators. So about 50% of women and 40% of men have used a vibrator at some point. So it is a very prevalent thing. 75% of women in same-sex relationships have used a vibrator. So there's a large likelihood that your patient is using a device. And so if there are considerations as an OB, it's important to just ask that question. And even if the patient doesn't answer right away, they know that it's an environment where they can bring that up. Yeah, those statistics are amazing. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> 50%. Yes. Yeah. Um, so let's go on. To, how about menopause women? I, mm -hmm. I can see a whole bunch of ways you can use them here. Tell me. Yes. What, what, what do you do? So that hyperestrogen state and that vaginal atrophy that can occur, that's a really important consideration when you're recommending these devices. You don't necessarily want anything penetrative until that's managed. So using something external can be very, very helpful. Once the uh, menopause symptoms are better managed and the patient is more comfortable, that would be an appropriate time to introduce that penetrative toy. Now, the toy can also be very therapeutic for menopausal women. When we think about how the vibrator, the device, can increase sensation, increase blood flow, which is going to be very important in that hypoestrogen state to increase arousal and can actually increase desire as well. Uh, that's, that's tremendous. And I really like your comment about the, the vibration in, you know, increasing sensation and that doesn't it increase secretions as well to, that makes the, the dryness better too. Yes. Okay. Yes, it can. And on that same note, lubricants. So lubricants are really important to consider too, and can help with the patient's own ability to self-lubricate, but using the right type of lubricant is important. So silicone based lubricants are what I typically recommend for penetrative intercourse, but those are very inappropriate for silicone based toys. 
So using a water base that doesn't have irritants and isn't going to cause any sort of inflammation is, is very important. That's great. Oncology patients. Mm -hmm. You, you made mention of it a little while ago uh, to, to people who had stenosis from treatment. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us a little bit about your oncology patients. Right. So we know that different treatments for cancer survivors can have an effect on libido. So anastrozole and tamoxifen are both known to decrease libido. So using these devices can help with that. The gonadotoxin chemotherapy or ophorectomies can send patients into early menopause. And so increasing the sensation and just the independence and taking ownership of their sexual health, these devices can really, really help with that. In patients that have had radical hysterectomies, those damaged hypogastric nerves, we know that that's going to lead to decreased blood flow, which I think I've beaten that horse plenty, but lots <laughs> and lots of benefit in terms of abusing the sex, sex devices there. When we talk about radiation, we bring in the subject of dilators, which I think could be its own podcast episode, but using dilators has been proven to be effective in improving sexual health, also in preparing women for future pelvic exams. So introducing those dilators and really emphasizing their role as a therapy agent really helps improve sexual health as well. So dilators, for those that don't know, are graduated, increasing in size, insertable tools inserted typically into the vagina that slowly increase tissue elasticity. I typically recommend silicone, but unfortunately, most women, when they are done with radiation, are given a very hard, large plastic dilator with little to no instruction on how to use it. So getting these women into a pelvic floor physical therapist, getting them the right education and instruction on how to use these devices is very, very important for efficacy of the, of the treatment. That's a great uh, you know, call to arms, I think, <laughs> trying try to get, you know, extend this kind of, of the treatment, you know, to, to, to do the radiation and tell people they're done is just not fair. And even speaking of pregnancy, I know in Europe, don't they allow women to see pelvic floor physical therapists after every pregnancy too? So yes. this is a tremendous, these are tremendous uh, tools and keys and for, for people to hear. Let's move on to chronic illness. I know that can be such a hindrance to, to sexual health. It, you know, in your paces of bad diabetics, uh, so on and so forth. What, what do you do for these people? What can you do for these people? So it very much depends on their presentation. Looking at these patients as an individual, what are their deficits? Is it a motor dysfunction? Is it something like rheumatoid arthritis where they're having difficulty gripping a device? So understanding what their capabilities are there, how independent are they? Is there an issue of understanding, comprehending what you're prescribing to them and understanding and allowing them to be adherent to it? So it really just comes down to what does the patient need? What, what are their goals and how do we navigate around them? That's great. And then the LGBTQ community as well. Yes. You know, I can only imagine all the different ways that you can help 
there. What's your comments there? It, it, it is a special consideration. And unfortunately, because of the taboo nature of a lot of these devices, people will use incorrect vernacular and call a device like a, a gay toy, or that's something that only this population uses, which is very, very incorrect. These can be used on all types of bodies with all sorts of identifications. And there are toys that are very much catered towards trans folk or women in same-sex relationships or men in same-sex relationships, all sort of situations. And it really comes down to what the individual needs in terms of there's gender affirming toys and devices that are specifically helpful with trans men. They're called packers. And then there are devices that allow for patients who don't necessarily want to see or view their genitals. So yeah, there's, there's a whole host of, of opportunity there. That's incredible. Just a, a world of uses, especially the therapeutic in the therapeutic realm, but you know, especially going back to just getting over the taboo nature of these devices and really getting to the point where you read enough that you're comfortable and, and you understand, you don't have to understand everything, but you understand enough and that you can teach people how to take care of these. Just absolutely important. So you got the people there, they're interested. How do they get the device and which device do they get? Right. So you really, again, want to consider what you're prescribing, what the patient needs, what's the goal here. So for insertional devices, patients who have pain, so GSM, pelvic or anal pain, they really need to select a dildo or an internal vibrator that is smaller than average. So the big question is, what size do I get? Right. That's probably the number one question that I get. An average insertable device is less than six inches long and less than four and a half inches in diameter. So that's typically where I will tell people to start. If someone is a novice with sex toys, then it's important to get something that has variable speeds and intensities so that they can find out what feels good to them. This is so individualized that the patient really has to take some responsibility for finding out what feels right for them and just empowering them to do so. And going back to those screening questions, understanding is this for solo use? Is this for partnered use? Is privacy a concern? So some toys are specifically designed to be quieter. Wands, devices that plug into the wall are typically more powerful, but they're also louder. So if privacy is a concern, that's something to bring up as well. And that can be very overwhelming for patients to just hop online and look for something like that. Uh, most people are not comfortable walking into a brick and mortar retail shop. So most will go online. So it's important to send them to an ethical, responsible site that is sex positive. So I have a few recommendations. Well, one question I'm going to insert, I mean, the, the parties quote, in yes. the quote, is that legit? Or is that, you know, 
These are non-medical people. How do you feel about those? So there are sex educators out there who have gotten specialized training in, in teaching people about sex. And that is very legitimate. Unfortunately, this isn't something that is monitored or credentialed. So it can be hard to know what is a sexpert, what is a sexual educator. These are not regulated terms. And so I tend to encourage people to avoid those parties uh, just from an abundance of caution because there is so much bad information out there and we really don't want to perpetuate that. So I would rather have them talk to their provider, whether that be an OBGYN, a pelvic floor PT, a sex therapist is another great option. So there are legitimate parties, but there are also a lot of illegitimate parties. (laughs) (laughs) So the the sources you had just brought up, Mm -hmm. I have a number of suggestions. What, What are those? So one of my favorites is actually owned by a sex educator who has gotten specialized training and it's called Toolshed Toys. Okay, great. Uh, and that's toolshedtoys.com. Lay Wand is another good one. They tend to be a little on the pricier side, but very high quality devices. Dame is, a, is another good one. Spell that. D-A-M-E. And we will definitely put these in the show notes. So <laughs> if you're if you're screwing for uh, pencil and paper, these will be in the show notes. Uh, have no fear. So go ahead. Uh, Smile Makers, which I just adore the name. Um, <laughs> and The Pleasure Garden is another good one. Yeah. Okay, good. So all of these, like I said before, are very transparent with what materials they use. Some of them even have quizzes on what type of toy works best for you if you have the privacy concerns or if you want your partner involved. But they also, especially Lewand, has really great articles and they interview experts and have a lot of good information out there for for patients. This is tremendous information. My favorite part of the interview is just getting down to the end where we we ask, throw us some pearls. I mean, (laughs) There's a bunch of learners out there wanting to hear, you know, the really great stuff. What pearls do you want to leave us with about devices that you have found to be the most important things? Oh my gosh, that's going to be hard to do. <laughs> really, the big one that we that we keep repeating is the taboo nature of this. People have sex. People are having sex. People want good sex. And with the statistics I mentioned before, most people are using devices. So really just grabbing onto this idea and letting people know that it's okay to use them, both from an enhancement perspective, but also from a therapeutic standpoint is is so important. There are some ideas out there that I've heard from patients about desensitization. So will I become dependent on a vibrator to have an orgasm? They've actually done research on this and only about 15% of users report decreased sensitivity, but it's transient and very mild and can be treated or navigated around just by changing the, the vibrations. So it's not really something that we need to be concerned about from, from a physiologic perspective. And we all know that, you know, actually sex is a quality of life marker. Yes. 
So you're just helping with quality of life. It's quality of life. It's function. Yeah. Absolutely. That's what people want. So, well, anything else? I really appreciate your time here. You've given a great expose about devices and really helping our learners get comfortable with this idea. So we want to thank you for this time again. And again, we appreciate this so much. It's it's a tough conversation <laughs> and uh, you did it very gracefully. So thank you again. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sex Ed for Sex Med. Please find the articles used in today's discussion in the show notes for further study. Also, you will find the contact information for our expert today.